have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. If you're visiting the church this afternoon, this is your first time here. Our normal practice is to preach systematically through books of the Bible. Um, we were planning to begin a series, actually, through the... 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Our pastor was scheduled to preach this afternoon, and then I got a text from Phil this morning that he got sick, and uh, he wasn't able to overcome uh, the sickness he had, and so I am standing up here with short notice and preparation, and so I don't know if I really have a sermon for you this morning, but more of a brotherly exhortation. Um, I don't really know. I, I tried my best in the short amount of time I had this morning. Keep in mind, my wife is also out of town at a conference. So, you know, we, we made plans and, and, and the, Lord had, the Lord had different plans. So we had certain plans and His plans were different. So I just titled this morning's message, Victory Through the Simplicity of the Cross. And and what and and really, this is just something the Lord has. The way this kind of came together is just the Lord had had burdened on my heart just through private reading. And so there there was no pre-selected text for me to prepare for. So I just ask that you would be gracious and bear with me, as I was not prepared to preach this morning, and I believe in the means of grace that, yes, prayer, singing, but I also believe that the Word of God um, is just as important and vital as the other means. So I hope to encourage you. I hope to strengthen you in the faith. I hope to help you make progress in your transformation or your sanctification. uh, Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray and let me ask Him. Father, I come before you again this afternoon, and Lord, God, the only encouragement I find is that huh, a man could be a master expositor, a man could perfect the science of preaching, he could speak with great conviction and emotion and passion, but God, unless your Holy Spirit moves upon the hearts of any of us, It's all a vain work. All in vanity. That's my hope, God. You would work this morning. You would serve Your people. You would strengthen and encourage them and grow them in their understanding of Christ that they would get a greater glimpse of Jesus this morning. A greater glimpse of the cross. Lord, that they would savor the cross. That they would see it as most valuable, Lord. That it would no longer be ordinary to them. God, that it would it would be good. Lord, it would be something that they want to plow deeper into, God. Please, Lord, help me, God, in my weakness. Help me in my lack of preparation, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. So let's read our text. 
1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, Power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, I've titled the message this morning, Victory by the Simplicity of the Cross, Through the Simplicity of the Cross. So in order for us to really comprehend fully what Paul is saying here, we need to learn a little bit more information about the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. And so what I want us to see is that who is Paul? Why, why, is this, why is this important what Paul's saying? What do we know about Paul? Well, in Acts 22, verse 3, it says, Paul writes this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God as, as all of you are this day. Give me a second, I want to start my stopwatch. It's the mercy of God towards y'all, accountability. Especially with not having a whole bunch of notes. So, let me read it again, I'm sorry. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet, of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Acts 26, verses 4-5. through five. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived, Pharisee. Then Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So from the testimony of the Scriptures, what do we learn about this man, the Apostle Paul? We're all familiar with Paul's conversion story. We're all familiar that he was on his way to persecute the church, and then the Lord spoke to him or appeared to him, and he was converted. But what I want us to be more familiar with is kind of the background of Paul, and I'm not doing an extensive study or explanation of Paul's background, but what we can see from the Scripture is that Paul, Paul was an educated man. Paul was a devout man. Not only devout Judaism, but also devout to the traditions of his father. He was, like I said, very well educated and most likely 
He was not only educated in Judaism, but which would be the Torah, the Scriptures, but most likely he was educated um, in the culture of his day, which is Rome. Probably had to possess some form of a Greek education. You can see that Paul was cultured in the sense that he was familiar with the culture that he was living in, if that makes sense what I'm saying. Paul just, he didn't only have the knowledge of the Scriptures. Paul was familiar of the philosophy of his day, the art of his day. Paul probably probably was a very learned man. He was probably a very intellectual man, academic man. Paul was a cultured man. But what it took Paul, Paul years to achieve and accomplish through Judaism, through all of his training, he said he was trained from his youth. What's interesting, what I want to point out to us, is that that was all shattered in just one encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that Paul saw as valuable, something to be ambitious for, was utterly destroyed at the revelation of Jesus Christ that he received. This same man I just described to you also wrote these things, Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. But what is Paul saying here? Paul saying that everything he previously had in his life, even the wisdom that he achieved, ambitions he might have had, accomplishment. Remember, he was far surpassing others his own age in his Judaism. Paul was climbing that ladder of success. Right? But what does he say? All of those things he counts them as rubbish compared to gaining Christ. Now the word rubbish here is just, it's translated from a Greek word that really means dung. So what the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us is this. You have Christ in one hand. You have the treasure and glory of Jesus Christ in one hand. And in the other hand, you have all the wisdom, the accolades, the accomplishments of the world. They're both presented to you. They're both presented presented to you for you to choose one for you to choose one so paul puts it this way for us to help us see it more clearly you have christ in one hand and then you have feces in the other feces and for you kids that's poop that's poop but you have all of this he considers it as feces compared to gaining christ think about it. Think about the history of the Apostle. Think about everything that he had accomplished before Christ. What he was gaining. And he considers it all rubbish for the sake of gaining Christ. Christ is more valuable to him. To Paul, there is nothing that, that compares to knowing Christ Jesus. And the rest of his life, 
He's on this pursuit to know Christ more. As I said, to plumb those depths even deeper. Even deeper. But to get back to our passage, listen to what Paul writes. And when I came to you, brother, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. When Paul came preaching to these unbelievers at Corinth, he didn't come with a great and high speech of wisdom or eloquence or man's philosophy. Paul probably wasn't rational or reasonable to him. What does he come with? He comes with the cross of Jesus Christ. He comes with Christ and Him crucified. He says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul knew that I'm not going to persuade these men through philosophical arguments. I'm not going to persuade them through reasonable faith. It's going to be a work of God through Jesus Christ, His Son, that opens up these unbelievers' eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. If you've taught it all, if you've done any kind of street evangelism, any kind of preaching, you've prepared the greatest message you could possibly prepare for those unbelievers out on that street corner. You've, get, you've done all the apologetic study. You put it all together. You've perfected it the way you presented it. Not one of them comes and repents. Not one of them comes and says, tell me more about Christ. Why? Why? Now, it's possible the Lord's doing a work and you don't see it. Because it's not through just rational arguments or persuasion. Yes, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, but the Lord ultimately is the one that has to do the work of conversion in the unbeliever's heart. Paul knows this. He knows it. Paul had all the Old Testament Scriptures learned, probably memorized at a young age, and he still missed Christ. It took a supernatural divine work of God to come down and to reveal His Son personally to cry, or Paul to open up his eyes to the truth. That this God whom he thought he was serving, he was actually persecuting. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen to this. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is not Paul saying, I possess no other knowledge about the world. I'm sure Paul was very familiar again with the Corinthian culture, their fads, the things they liked. He was a citizen of Rome. He was like us. He lived in that culture. Their arguments, the things that they were into, what they thought about the variety, the spectrum of what they thought about the world and man and his origins. Paul makes a decision here that I'm going to know nothing among these people except to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is my message, my identity to them. Is the Son of God and Him crucified for sinners. Crucified. What is it that
that is so important about the cross of Jesus Christ. What does the cross of Christ reveal to us? Well, first, it reveals to us the holy nature of God. That God is holy. That God hates sin. That God's wrath is burning against sin. That God will not tolerate sin. He will not overlook it. And it also shows that we deserve to die for our sin. We deserve God's wrath for our sin. The Bible says that all of us are born into sin. That none is righteous, no, not one. For you children, what does that mean? That means that you were born into Adam's sin. Adam, our first parent, going way back to the beginning, he fell. If you're familiar, he, he took of the tree's fruit and he ate it. He disobeyed God and therefore God cursed Adam. God cursed creation. You have inherited Adam's sin. You're born under Adam. You know the saying, we do not, we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. I hope that's how you say it. What does that mean, children? It means this, is that you were born a sinner and therefore you will sin. You will sin. Think about it. Do your parents from your youngest age, and this applies to all of us, have to come to you and say, you know what? You should sin more. You should take from your brother. You should, go, you should go still. No, actually the conversations that your parents have with you is the opposite, right? Which proves this, that no one's teaching you how to still. No one's coming to you saying, take from your brother, or be mean to your brother, or do this to your brother. No, your parents are having to come and correct you to do the right thing. Because from your, from your womb, you, like me and everyone else, you've gone astray. You've sinned against, the God, sinned against God. You were born with a sinful nature and therefore you violate God's commandment. The reason why Paul chooses to know nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ is because as I mentioned before to you, is that the cross reveals God's holiness. It reveals His holiness that God will not tolerate your sin. God will not overlook it. Yes, God sends children to hell. That might sound radical to you. Think about this. Think about Noah's flood. How many children do you think perish in the flood of God's wrath? There's only one family that was preserved. There's no one in his family. The cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates the holiness of God and what God requires for sin. But the cross of Jesus Christ also demonstrates the loving kindness and the grace and the mercy of God. And I'm sure you are hearing this in your... I pray you're hearing this in your home and not only from Sunday. That would be a tragedy. That would be a tragedy. The cross also reveals God's love towards us. And that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world 
Jesus being fully God and fully man. Born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the Son of God, lived a perfect life. He never stole from His brother. He loved His brother. He loved God perfectly. Jesus Christ fulfilled, the Bible says, all righteousness. He was a perfect man. He perfectly kept the law of God. Kept it all. He didn't fail in one area. Think about that. Think, can you fathom that? Jesus Christ was a perfect man. He was a perfect man. He never sinned. Never sinned against his neighbor, and he, therefore he never sinned against his Father in heaven. And Jesus goes to a cross, and he dies. He suffers and he dies upon that cross, and you've heard it said that the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus on that cross. Now here's a question I have for you, and this is for all of us, but since I'm speaking to the children, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The way we die because we sin. That's the curse. If Jesus was sinless, why did He die? Why did He die, right? Wouldn't that be unjust for a sinless man, a perfect man, to die upon that cross? Let me tell you why. Jesus died on that cross because He became our sin. He became our sin. The Bible teaches that. It says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. Jesus became a sin offering on behalf of His people. All the sins that you have committed, you will commit, that you will commit today, are imputed to Christ. They're given to Jesus Christ. And all the wrath that God has towards your sin was poured out upon Christ 2,000 years ago on Calvary. Think about that. All the wrath that you deserve for your sin against God, Jesus Christ bore the penalty of your sin. He suffered under the wrath of God. When we were going through 1 John, we looked at that word propitiation. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for us. Right? Our sin. He is the satisfaction, the appeasement of God's wrath. God's wrath was perfectly satisfied and quenched through the death of His Son. And that perfect life that Jesus lived on, on this earth. Not only do you need to be sinless, Jesus also says you must be perfect, Right? Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. The Scriptures say you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So not only must you be neutral, you're at a place of zero, right? There's no sin, but you also have to have what's called positive righteousness. You need a perfect life, positive obedience towards God. A love for God and a love for neighbor. Not only was Jesus sinless, but He was perfect. Everything He did was absolutely perfect and without sin. So through faith in Jesus Christ, and I'll get to faith, not only is our sins 
credit it to Him. Your sin imputed upon Christ on that cross. He suffers. He dies in your place, satisfying God's wrath against your sin. But the perfect obedience, the perfect life of Christ is also imputed to you, which means it's just accredited to your account. So children, imagine you have a bank account. you got a bank account. And in that bank account, you're in debt. You're, you get, you're, you're, you've overdrafted. That means you're negative $1,000. You owe the bank $1,000. You've got no money in your account. You're actually you're negative. Someone comes and they pay your debt off. They bring that account back up to zero. Well, then Jesus adds $1,000, or you could say a trillion dollars, whatever the amount is you want to put. He puts a positive amount into that account. That's what Christ does for us. And who does this apply to? Does this apply to you if you were just born a Christian or born, or born under Christian parents? Are you justified because you have Christian parents? Are you justified by the faith of your parents? Or because you show up to church every day and, and say you're moral, you're, you're pretty good, you don't do wrong, you listen to your parents, you're, overall you're pretty obedient children. And even adults, the same applies to us. You go to a Reformed church. You listen to Paul Washer. You read the right books. You do all the right things. But is your faith in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Here's what this means. It means on the day of judgment, when you die, you either stand before God or when Christ returns to judge this world in righteousness, to judge the good and the wicked, when you stand before Him and He says, Corey, why should I let you into My kingdom? Why should I welcome you in to everlasting life? I will not stand before God on that day and say, because of My service at Grace Life, I preached sermons. I did some street evangelism. I went and did abortion ministry. I love my wife. I love my kids. I read the right books. I did the right thing. That's not going to be my answer. Because I know better. I know better. I know God is just. I know that I have violated God's law already. That if God were to truly give me what I deserve, He would have to punish me for the sins that I have committed against Him. He won't overlook it. My answer will be one answer. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus. What He did for me. That's why. My faith in Him. My trust in Him alone. And not my righteousness. That's what faith looks like. I cling to Christ. And Him alone. Children, perhaps you're familiar with Ray Comfort. Maybe your parents watch Way of the Master with you. Ray Comfort is a, an evangelist. He likes to give this analogy of, of faith. And he compares it to jumping out of a plane. Jumping out of a plane. He's like, you've you got a parachute. You're gonna, you know the plane's going down. You know it's going to crash. Your parents are telling you about the righteousness of God, that your life is temporary, that you will die. You will stand before God one day. You will give an account. A lot like a plane that's crashing, right? You know it's going to end. You know it's coming. And that there's only one way out. You have to jump out of the plane. 
We think, well, if I just jump out of the plane, you know, I'll die. But your parents say, hey, there's a parachute, and this parachute is Christ. Right? You can say, oh, I believe in the parachute. Put my faith in the parachute. I'm looking at the parachute, and it just sits on that seat. You never put the parachute on. No, true faith looks like this. That plane is going down. You don't just say, I believe in the parachute, but you actually take that parachute, you put it on, you jump out of the plane, you pull the string, and you trust in the ability of that parachute to stop your fall. That's what true faith looks like. You trust in Christ. You take Him at His Word. You obey His commandments. You read His Word. You know that apart, of, apart from Jesus Christ, you have no true wisdom or knowledge. Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no understanding of God. And apart from Jesus Christ, you have no salvation. You cling to Christ. You cling to Him. Paul knows what men need. Paul knows who he is. And he knows what Christ has done for him. And he knows what these Corinthians need. That's why he makes this decision to know nothing among them except the Son of God and His crucifixion. And he is going to plow away at that. And he is going to preach Christ and Him crucified to them until they understand it. Until they believe. More could be said about that. He says, I decided to know. Again, the willful decision of the Apostle Paul. There's many things that we can know. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, there's many areas of Christianity and doctrines and theologies you could study, but my challenge to you is Christ primary. Is He primary? As Juan read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Eloquent wisdom. It wasn't lofty speech. It wasn't the philosophies of his day. He wasn't blending Christianity with it, thinking that that was going to persuade him. You know, I'll just give them a little bit of their philosophy and I'll sprinkle a little Christianity in it, and maybe that'll persuade them to come on our team. It wasn't what he was doing. In fact, he said, if I do that, I'm emptying the cross of all of its power. I'm emptying it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul's not going to change his message to meet the culture of his day. He's not going to make it more palatable for them. He's not going to change the truth about Christ and God and what the cross means. He knows it's that message that is the power of God and the salvation. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. For it is the power of God. The power of God. It is that message of the cross. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the power of God unto salvation. For those who would believe in it. As where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. So you've got Jews, they're wanting to see signs and you've got the Greeks, they're wanting wisdom. Give us some more, philo- give us some more stuff to learn. New ideas, give it to us. Paul says, no, we preach Christ and Him crucified. And it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ, Paul chooses to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. I hope that's the case for us. I pray that's the case for us. That we don't think we're moving beyond the cross of Christ. That it's something common. That there's greater things, there's greater depths now to be plumbed besides Jesus and Him crucified. When you look at this culture today, and you look at the variety of ideas out there, I mean, it's really, it is insane, right? Just the spectrum of belief that's out there about who man is and what a man is, right? If a man is even anything, what message do you have for him? Is it the message of conservatism? Is it Turning Point USA? And all those great rational arguments, those can can be helpful. But where are you placing your hope? Ultimately, what's going on there? They're lost. And they're experiencing the wrath of God, as it says in Romans 1, it's being poured out upon them. So they're being given over to sinful desire. And it's just... It's evolving. The harder their hearts get, it just continues to devolve. The image of God in them, they become like animals, like wild beasts, as the Scripture would say. But what message do you have for them, church? I hope it's the cross of Jesus Christ. I hope it's through the powerful proclamation of Him, of Jesus crucified for sinners. I hope that's your That's why I titled the message Victory Through the Simplicity of the Cross. Most of you have a positive eschatology. You have a positive outlook on the future. I do too. But I'll say this. It's going to come through the preaching of the cross. It's going to come through a powerful proclamation, a testimony of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we won't waver from that. When the world thinks it's foolishness, we're not going to bring in a little bit of rational argument to try and win them over. We're not going to start doing all that. No, we're going to plant our feet firmly at the cross of Christ and we're going to hold that cross up and we're going to proclaim it powerfully to this culture saying all who would come to Jesus will be saved. They will escape the wrath of God. Paul says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's comforting for me. Right? The great Apostle Paul comes to this church in Corinth in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When Paul was amongst these Corinthians, His stature wasn't great. 
They weren't impressed by his intellectual aptitude, although he had it. He had it, but he wasn't trusting in that. But what they saw was a man who was trembling, as it says. There was a fearfulness there. He was a weak man. Possibly a frail man. We know he had an ailment with his eyes. And the words he came with weren't plausible words. Plausible meaning that they weren't believable to them, right? By the world's standards. This message, what? God becoming a man and dying upon a cross for the sins of His people? It's not plausible. What? That's unbelievable. They weren't credible to them. They weren't reasonable. As Paul says, they were foolishness to the Greeks. They're stumbling blocks to the Jews. See, the greatness of Paul's ministry, this demonstration of the Spirit and power, is that in the midst of that environment, by the grace of Jesus Christ and demonstration of the Spirit, Paul boldly proclaims that message. He boldly proclaims it. And yes, Paul, God is working miracles through the Apostle Paul. There are signs that are taking place. But perhaps the greatest sign is Paul's ability to stand up in the midst of that alone and continue to thunderously preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In all of that weakness, think about that. All of that frailty, that weakness, that fear, stand up and just proclaim Jesus, counting the cost, knowing what it... He's in a, he's in a pagan culture. He knows what they think about His message. He's already been beaten. He's already been... He's already experienced persecution. His own people have beaten beaten him. His own kin. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he stands up boldly and he proclaims Jesus Christ regardless. In the demonstration of the Spirit and power, he preached the truths of Christ in their native dress. The plainness of speech, he laid down the doctrine as the Spirit delivered it, and he left the Spirit by his external operation and signs and miracles and his internal influence on the hearts of men to demonstrate the truth of it and procure its reception. That's Quote from Matthew Henry. This demonstration of the Spirit and power is on display before them through God, working through all the apostles. As I mentioned, yes, through great miracles, but through His courage to stand up and just proclaim the simplicity of the cross for them. What is the application of this? The application is this. Here's a warning for men who are aspiring to be teachers. A warning to me is don't place too much of your hope and your ability to become, I guess, an scholastic, academic, seminary education. Don't put all your weight into that. Don't put all your eggs into that basket. Because you have a message that's saying something weakness, 
frailty. Demonstration of the Spirit and the power of God. I'm not saying seminaries are not hopeful and they're not a grace of God. But I see kind of this, I don't know if it's this desire to be accepted, to be seen as reasonable in the academic world, in the field of education. Look, we, we, look, we have nice conferences. We have nice institutions. We're learned. We're not just fool's world. So, you know, listen to us. We study. We read all the greats. We do all of it. But is there any demonstration of the Spirit and power? I love expository preaching. I think expository preaching is a good discipline because it keeps you faithful to the entire counsel of God's Word. While we preach, we've done that since before I was at Grace Life. Grace Life has done that. There can be an overemphasis on expositional preaching, the science and the art of preaching. And there can be a lack of dependency upon the Holy Spirit and the power of God to move in the hearts of people. It's funny that this verse comes to mind this morning just because of my own circumstances. There was no time to formulate an outline and a sermon. Just dependency upon Jesus Christ. To just fall on the knees and pray and say, God, give me something to say to Your people. And the verse comes to mind. And trusting in the Lord. Do we believe like that? Do we believe that God actually will help us? Give us words of truth. Bring to remembrance the Scriptures and give illumination to what they mean. The exhortation of men who are wanting to teach and want you aspire to be an elder is trust in Christ. Trust in God. Trust in the Holy Spirit. Do not place the entirety of your hope, your training, your trust, and your commentary all of these wonderful tools. I am not degrading the work of far greater than men than me. Trust me, I'm not speaking so arrogantly to say that they are not helpful. I use commentary. But I depend upon Christ. And I've found the greatest help in preaching and standing up on a street corner when it seems like everybody wants to literally kill you is through the Spirit of God at work in my life helping me. A very real thing. A very real thing. So if I can encourage you men who aspire, who want to teach more and want to be elders, have a living relationship with God, a dependency upon God, a trust in God, a relationship with Christ. I want to share this because I thought it was a help just a helpful little side note here is if you've taught it all, you've probably experienced that quiet drive to church where you're like, it's been a complete waste of time. It's all it's a great failure. They're all gonna be staring at me with blank stares. Lord, what am I doing? Just let's end this. And there's just fear and doubt in the Lord's faithfulness. And I've experienced that. A bro- one brother saw me standing 
somewhere and he comes to me and he asks me how I'm doing, I kind of share. Cause it just comes out, right? It's, it's, I'm struggling right now. And he brings up another man, Joel Beakey, who we would consider a great expositor of God's Word, a great historian, right? He's Puritan. And he brings up the fact that Joel Beakey goes through the very same thing. He goes through the very same feeling. Quiet, struggling. And his, he's been preaching for so long, his family, his wife, and his kids know when he's going through that because he gets real quiet on the drive to church. And they'll say, hey, it's happening again. Right? It's happening again. His wife just looks at him and goes, looks like you're just going to have to trust the Lord to help you one more time. One more time. That's a very true reality. We depend upon Christ. Depend upon Him. Last verse, so that your faith not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, the danger of resting upon the wisdom of men to persuade other men through just being rational, philosophical, you want to be seen as reasonable, even maybe a little, you want to make the message more palatable, so they don't just think you're a crazy person. I mean, have you ever been accused of being in a cult? So you try to water it down unintentionally. You try to make it more acceptable to them. Thinking that that's going to be the means in how they believe in Christ. That's not what the Scriptures say. If they can be persuaded through the wisdom of men, the speech of men, they can be convinced about how reasonable and rational Christianity is is it's only going to take a greater man with a greater wisdom, greater speech, to persuade them how unreasonable and unrational Christianity is. We don't want their faith to rest in the wisdom of men, but we want it to rest in the power of God. That power of God, it's made known through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Just through the simplicity of that message. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. It is a revelation of how God brings men to Himself. Don't lose that. Don't put your hope in anything else but that simple message of Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Father, I, You've helped me once again, Lord. I'm thankful. God. God, I pray that You would take anything of what was said and You would apply it to the hearts of Your people and that there would be something that's helpful and edifying and strengthening and encouraging, maybe even, even rebuking, Lord. Convicting, God. Lord, help us to know Christ and Him crucified for sinners. God, exalt Christ to us. Lord, You can do it. God, You, you, you can strike straight blows with crooked sticks, God. I am a crooked stick. God, please, bless Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.